couple of weeks ago, you know, we saw Paul living a life fully surrendered. Last time I was here, we were talking about what it meant to be fully surrendered. And we talked about the different types of surrender. Remember we talked about incomplete, which is basically you surrender up to a point. Insincere, which basically it's all talk and no action. We talked about intermittent. It kind of comes and goes. I think we, we kind of can fall into that category a lot. You know, our, our surrender to God, it's not that we're up to a point, but we just are human and we fall or we fail. And um, But then we talked about total surrender, what that looks like. That means conviction regardless of consequences. And we saw that in Paul. And we're, we're in Acts 21. Today we're looking at verses 17 through 40, but during the first part of 21, we looked at this surrender of Paul's, and we, we heard really the call for us to live a, a life that's fully surrendered. To do that, God calls us, we said, first of all, to live daily, what? With knowledge of His purpose. What is His purpose for me? His purpose for me is to what? What's His purpose? It's, it's, it's to be His kingdom priest. We know that from Exodus 19.6, 1 Peter 2.9. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. God has called us to be kingdom priests for Him. People who relate to Him as a priest and we're the go-between between man and God. We are to be His witnesses, Jesus said. Paul says ambassadors. But that's His purpose and we're to live daily with that. That is our purpose. It's not to make a million dollars or five million dollars or ten million dollars. It's not to provide for my family, although those are things that we do in doing the first purpose. But those are secondary. The primary purpose any believer of God has is to be His kingdom priest on earth. And so, we looked at that. Paul embraced that. But we also are to live deliberately with the singleness of His purpose. And how do we do that? Well, that means we're aware of distractions and how the enemy comes in and he tries to distract. So we're singly focused on what that purpose is. That, that's the thing. And then third, we saw we have to live dyingly with the supremacy of that purpose. That purpose trumps every other thing in life. Now, that being said, that's hard to do. And if we're really, really honest, we live in a world full of distractions. We do. Um, I was talking at the service about how in India... I go to places over there, they look forward to dying if they're believers. We do everything to hold on to life because the enemy has saturated this comfort, this country with comfort and pleasure. And it makes the world seem like a place we want to make home. But this is not our home. And we forget that. We have uh, amnesia as far as our spiritual purpose and and why we're here. And so, Paul, we saw as he came back from Asia, remember he was three years there, he was over in Ephesus, 
He was building into these disciples. He's now got seven of them. He's bringing money back to the church in Jerusalem. And he stops at all these little stops. And then he gets on a boat and he, a Phoenicia and he heads to Tyre. He meets people there. He goes to Caesarea. He meets Agabus who says, hey, they're going to bind the man. Remember, he prophesied about him being bound. And um, he goes with disciples from Ephesus. They stay at Manasseh's house. And they go to Jerusalem. Manasseh's this old saint that he and Paul probably had some great conversations. Because Paul realizes he knows he's at the end of his life. And the thing that really, to me, <laughs> comes out of this whole text, both the first, what we covered last week and even today, is Paul's humility and all of it. Because it, it, it's humble to go into suffering because that's what God wants you to do. Pride <coughs> says, well, I, I, I got too much stuff to do over here. You ever feel like that? I can't do what God wants me to because I got too many other things to do. My plan is better than God's plan. That's pride. That's nothing but pure pride. Pure pride. You see, I can tell you, my plan wasn't to go to Mississippi for 10 days or 11 days. I had a board meeting. I had financials which I hate doing, but I have to do them every year. I had all these things that were on my calendar that I was supposed to do, and I, I just, they had to go away because that wasn't God's plan. Sometimes we don't like God's plan. A lot of times we don't. But humility says, I'm His. He made me. He bought me. I'm His. He owns me. That's Humility. And in God's economy, guys, humility equals usability. You want to be used by God? You got to be humble. You got to be. And there's two ways that we get humble. We get humble through the reading and study of His Word, which shows us who we are and who He is, or our circumstances. And so, Paul, Paul goes... Spends his time with Manasseh, and now he's in Jerusalem. And literally, he has led, think about this, thousands of pagans. Thousands, guys, of pagans to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by this point. That's amazing when you stop and think about it. God used Paul, the guy who was the chief persecutor, to lead thousands, not of Jews, but of pagans. People who didn't have all the Scriptures. Who didn't know all the stuff in the Old Testament. Despite all the efforts of Satan to stop him, to persecute him, to kill him, God's Gospel and His servant prevailed. So you would think with all those accomplishments and what he's gone through, Paul would be prideful. You would think that. I mean, I almost died for the Gospel. They stoned me. I've, I've been shipwrecked. I, I've been beaten time after time. And you're going to tell me how to minister? Really? 
But what we see in today's passage is the true measure of a spirit-led man. Paul is one of the best, if not the best example of the best a human can be in following Christ. Because Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God. Paul wasn't that. Paul was human. He made mistakes. He was flawed. He struggled. He said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. You feel like that ever? But yet, we still see a man who was totally surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. And just like with Paul, God calls us. He calls us to that. And as He calls us to do that, in this text today, I want to point out three things that I see in Paul's life in this particular text. And God calls us to do the same thing. First of all, to always give Him glory. We give Him the glory for the things He accomplishes through me. We always give God the glory for the things He accomplishes through me. Now, we say that. Well, it's God. It's all God. But a lot of times, if I'm really honest, deep down, I think I'm a pretty good guy. Now, I've done some pretty cool things. You see how I help that person out? I'm pretty good. Not Paul. He gave God the glory, and we're going to see that. The second thing is, he calls us to always submit to his authority through those he has appointed over us. Do you know that you guys are under authority? Spiritually, you are under the authority of the elders of your church. Because they function as under shepherds for the chief shepherd. And the Bible says that that, they are to be the ones to administrate the rule of God in the church, the elders of the church. Paul goes back to Jerusalem and the elders tell him, you've got to do this. And I I read that and I just wince because I go, man, he's done all this and they're telling him he's got to go do this. But that was the authority that he served under. And a lot of times we don't like that. What about your parents? I, I didn't. I wasn't. Yeah, I was taught honor your mother and father, but they are the authority of God. When you dishonor your folks, you're dishonoring God because they're His representatives in your life. So He calls us to submit to God's authority, to His authority through those He's appointed, and then finally. The last thing is he calls us to trust in his sovereignty in the life he has allotted to us. And sometimes that's hard when you get a diagnosis, right Chuck? Sometimes that's tough when you lose a daughter, right Chuck? Sometimes it's tough when he says, I want you to do this. This is your allotment, Riley. This is where I have you. 
not over here. I have you here. You're dealing with this at this moment because I sovereignly placed you there. And sometimes that's hard. But he calls us to trust in his sovereignty in those moments. And we see that in Paul. And we're going to look at that in the text. So let's read the text, verses 17 through 40. And we're going to come back and we'll look at each one of these. So follow along with me, starting in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against Moses, or I'm sorry, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of, of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried, talking about Paul, by the soldiers. So you've got this picture of Roman soldiers actually carrying Paul. 
up the steps to the Antonio Fortress. For the mob of the people followed crying out, away with him, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. These are the very words of God. Paul, in Jerusalem, knowing what he's going to go through, and it's about to happen, but the first thing that happens before he gets taken away is what? He sees the brothers, and it says what? They received us gladly. You know what that that is? That's fellowship. That's fellowship of... They came together. It's like when I was in Meridian, I went home and I saw believers and people who came to the funeral home the night before just to come comfort me. I saw people I haven't seen in 30, 40 years. Friends I went to school with. My college roommates came. They heard about it and they came. And they just wanted to comfort me. And what God's doing here is He's comforting Paul with the fellowship of the saints. There's something beautiful about the blood of Christ going through people and bringing them together. There's a comfort there. And that's what we see in verse 17. They received us gladly. And notice who it is. So in verse 18, who are these people? He went in. It was James and all the elders. James, this is not James the brother of John. This is James the half-brother of Jesus. He was also called Old Camel Knees. James the Just. He was called Old Camel Knees because he was a prayer warrior. The same James that would, would be thrown off the temple and beaten to death at the base of the temple. That James. He's there with elders. It's interesting that the elders during this time period, there was probably, a lot of people believe there was about 70 elders. That was the number of people in the Sanhedrin, and they believed there was about 70 elders. We've got to remember, there's thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of believers now in Jerusalem. That's what that word means when it says all these believers, that there's myriads, it's tens of thousands of believers. So you've got 70 leaders, and this is those men, these elders. So you've got James and his people. James is like the spokesperson. He's kind of holding down the fort. Where are the apostles? Well, they're out doing ministry. They're out in other places. And isn't it interesting how God has transitioned back in Acts 4? And uh, Acts 2, you got the apostles are leading the church, right? In Acts 6, you add some deacons to the mix for logistics. 
But then, over in Acts 15, what do you see? You see the apostles and elders. And now we see just the elders. Because that's kind of the transition of the church. Because the church should be led by elders today. It's led by Christ who administrates through the elders. And that's what we see. And what happens when all these people are fellowshipping? Well, look what it says, verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one. You know what that means? That means specific events. So basically what Paul is doing here is a mission report back to the church. He's a missionary who's been out and he comes back in one by one. Let me tell you what happened. Oh my gosh, we got arrested. There was a mob and we got, we got thrown in jail. And there was an earthquake. We're singing at midnight, right? Like it says back in Psalms, we're singing we're singing praises and there was an earthquake and then this jailer was going to kill himself. He's telling every story to these people to encourage them. He's telling them stories because he wants them to hear what God has done, not what Paul has done. Notice that that's what he says. One by one, the things God has done. Paul was careful to always give God glory. Back in Acts 14.27, when he reported then, he said the same thing. This is what God has done. Back in Acts 15, he did the same thing. All that God had done. You see, Paul gave God the glory. And that's what we're supposed to do. Look what God has done. This is 20 plus years after Jesus. Look at what God has done. All these pagans. Romans. These people are jailers. People all in these pagan countries. The Gentiles. Yes, they're here with me. And we brought money because God's doing a great work there. It wasn't about Paul. That's a far cry from what we see in our culture. It's a far cry from the servants of God today. It really is. May we be like Paul here and not take credit for what God has done, but give Him the credit for what He's done. And what happens when you do that? Well, verse 20 says what? They start praising God. They heard it. They glorified God. They didn't glorify Paul. They didn't go, Paul, you're awesome. They were going, praise God. Praise the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Praise Elohim. Praise Adonai. They were praising God because of all that God had done. And in this, you see the humility of Paul, don't you? It was about what God had done. Well, verse 20, the second part. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands? Again, that word means myriads. It's like tens of thousands of the Jews. Think about that. How many Jewish believers there are there? And Paul, you see them, these who believe? They're zealous for the law. Listen, they're not zealous for the law for the sake of salvation. They're zealous for the law because that's their tradition. God gave them all those shadows in the ceremony, in the ceremonial law, the feast. And so these people are zealous 
for those things. They're more zealous now. They see the significance of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. This, he's not talking about they're trying to earn their way to heaven through the law. They're zealous because now they understand the feast. Now they understand the ceremonial law. The uncleanliness. They understand that. And so that's what he's saying. They're zealous for the law. But they've been told about you that you're telling people to not keep the law. And that's what the Judaizers would have been saying about Paul. You see, they're said, the Judaizers said Paul was antinomian, which means anti-law. Paul didn't lie. You can do whatever you want. That's what they were spreading about Paul. Did Paul say that? You can't find that in any writings. In fact, in Romans 7, I think it is, Paul loves the law. He said, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't know what sin was. They lied about Paul. Satan always lies. He's the chief liar. And his people lie. Paul never taught any Jew to forsake Moses. He never did that. He never told any Jew to forsake the law. He did teach Gentiles that they didn't have to keep the law of circumcision, the ceremonial law. They didn't have to do that. In fact, in Acts 15, James and the elders said that too. But we do keep the moral law because we're constrained to keep the moral law out of love, not out of obligation. But Paul, there's a difference, guys, between teaching Gentiles they don't have to follow the law for a relationship with God and teaching the Jews they're free in Christ. He never taught against the law. And so, in verse 22, what they say is, do what we tell you. Because he says, they're going to hear you. you've come here, you've got to do what we're going to tell you. It's going to hurt your witness, Paul. All these lies that have been spread, we have to show them that you really do love the law. Hey, by the way, did Paul keep the feast? Yes, he's there for Pentecost. Did he have to? No. But he did. Did Paul have to take Nazarite vows? No, but he did. We saw that he did that. You see, there's nothing evil about the feast or the law. There's nothing inherently evil about it. If people wanted to do it, they could. If the Jews wanted to keep celebrating, they could. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul even addresses that. He says, if one man regards one day as his whole, let him do it. That's fine. And so they tell him, do what we tell you to do. Hey, when people tell you that, how do you respond? <laughs> Mike, you need to do what I tell you to do. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Who made you, who, who left you in charge, right? Yeah. 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 You see, we don't give our elders in our culture the authority that other cultures do, and certainly not the culture of the Bible in the first century. Because we look at them as humans. We don't look at them as God's representatives. 
It's the same with the pastors who teach. We look at them as a communicators, not God communicating through them. That's a big problem in our country. It's a huge issue for us. What if the church functioned the way this church functioned? What if when an elder came to you and said, Teddy, listen, you need to do this. You go, okay, just tell me where to go. Why not? Well, why do I need to do this? See, our, our, our first act is not obedience. We're like little kids, teenagers with our parents who tell us to do something. Why do I have to do that? Why can't I do this? I'm grown. I'm an adult. Very different response back then. And we've lost the reverence of God's authority through His people that are supposed to be our spiritual leaders. And Paul submitted to the authority that God had appointed over him. He, you think, can I just have a quick comment? You think that part of that is just the corruption amongst the leaders? Well, I absolutely think it is. I, I, I absolutely is because we've lost a lot of the, the purity of that for sure. But I'm just talking about our individualistic mindset says, I've got my rights. Who are you to tell me what to do? We don't. We look at our leaders in our church as administrators, not as God's servants who are administrating for Him. We look at them more like in a business concept. That's why the whole CEO model thing is bad. It's bad. Not shep- They're shepherds. The elders are shepherds. Ken, that's a very solemn thing that you do as an elder. But, but people don't view it that way. People see you as Ken Forfar. Oh, he's a good guy. Yeah, I'll do what he says. I'll do what he says because I like Ken. And he, we, we look at the people, not who they represent. And for you guys, for you guys who were in the military, if a general's aide came to you and said something from the general, you gave that aide the respect of the general and what he said. And we forget that. We forget that. Well, they did it. These men had to, they, these four men had a Nazarite vow they were fulfilling. We talked about that. I'm not going into great detail. and go back to number six. But um, basically, if you took a Nazarite vow, it's because you're thanking God for getting you through something or you're asking Him to get through, you, through something. And what you did is you didn't drink any wine because basically wine was a symbol of worldly joy. It was joy. I mean, wine was always a symbol of joy. And you grew your hair out, which was really... Um, it was a, a, a symbol of kind of a reproach for a man to have long hair like that. Really long hair. And so you would let your hair grow out. There were three men in the Bible who had lifelong Nazarite vows. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And, and so, but if you had taken a Nazarite vow... You, you had touched a dead person. You had to have this purification process 
where you would go through this for seven days and then go to the temple and offer sacrifice. So these men were in the middle of that. They said, go with them. Told Paul, don't only go, pay their dues so that these people will see you really are for the Mosaic Law. You, you aren't against it like it's been said about you. Do what we tell you. So they, that's what he did. That's what Paul did. And by the way, in verse 25, James and the elder says, we're not asking you to require this of Gentiles. That's what verse 25 is about. That's why he says that there. We're not telling you you got to tell the Gentiles to do this. And so verse 26, what does it say? Paul submitted to the elders. Why? This is a good compromise. We can compromise in preference, guys. What we can't compromise is truth. But our preference, we can compromise. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 19. 9.19. 1 Corinthians 9.19, he says that. But, but, but I remember one guy one time said, there was a guy who said, well, you know what? Sometimes we, we have to go against God's truth to reach people. You can't ever violate truth to teach truth. That's ridiculous. Okay? You can't do that. In verse 23, what's the significance of the four men? Oh, they're just men who were doing the Nazarite vow. They were just guys who were doing a vow. And so they saw an opportunity for Paul to show these Judaizers he really wasn't teaching against the law. Which, by the way, was there another guy who... Uh, who was accused of going against Moses and the law against the temple? Jesus. Yeah. Was there another guy? Acts chapter 6. Stephen. Stephen. Who was there, by the way, when Stephen was doing that? Paul. You think Paul had some flashbacks? <laughs> and he remembered Stephen, by the way. As Paul's going through this, as he's being beaten and pummeled, he doesn't say a word. He doesn't say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. He doesn't make any defense. Is there another guy who didn't make a defense? Yeah. Yeah. So, he submitted himself to the authority of God and the people God had pointed out. And finally, in this last section, he trusted in his sovereignty. That hey, by the way, the Jews from Ephesus already tried to kill him, or at least they were there when those people tried to kill him. They didn't want him, but there was no Roman clerk here <laughs> this time to rescue him. But you know what God did? The Antonio Fortress for you guys who've been to Israel is right there. It's right there overlooking the temple. They had steps that went right down there to the courtyard. And all of a sudden, they get word of what's going on and they look down. They have a thousand troops over there looking at any time. Why? Because Rome stood for peace and justice. We see them as brutal, but they really did stand for peace and justice. And they didn't want disorder. And so they look down and see what's going on. Claudius Lysias, we know from chapter 23, he sends guys, they go down there. They come running down there to see what's happening. And as uh, we look, you know, if, if, you, if you look at what's going on, these Ephesian Jews are stirring up the crowd 
like had been done so many times in Asia before. And so they're saying he's teaching against Israel, he's teaching against Moses. And they and notice in verse 29 it says, they supposed he took Trophimus in. Just one quick note. This was Pentecost. You know what they celebrated at Pentecost? I know it's the, the feast of the first fruits, but it really became about the birthday of Torah. And it was about Jewishness. So imagine the frenzy they're celebrating. It'd be like us having this big 4th of July celebration and people going, this guy's a communist. He's teaching against the Constitution. He's teaching against... He's saying things against George Washington. That's what it would be like. And so they were whipped up into a frenzy. And you know what? They said about Trophimus, there were signs in the outer court. When you went from the outer court to the court of the women in the temple to the inner court, there was a sign there that said, you enter on penalty of death. And they actually found two signs. One in the 1800s, late 1800s, one in the early 19, like 1930s. Two signs written in Greek that said that. The Romans had given the Jews permission to kill people who went into their temple area. They weren't supposed to. And it says they dragged him out, verse 30, of the temple. Why? Why did they drag him out? Because they had to get him out because they didn't want to defile the temple. They dragged him out to beat him. And it says the gates were shut, not just on Paul, but on the Gospel. The exclusion of God's message and His message from the temple ultimately brought the doom to the temple. They wanted to kill Him. Claudius Lysias was a, what's called a chiliarch. That's a commander of a thousand, basically. And so his centurions came running down. They got him. They, were gonna, uh, they, they wanted to help Paul, but they arrested him because they didn't know who he was. They just knew he was at the center. And by the way, who prophesied? Agabus, remember? Agabus said, this is what's going to happen. And now here he is. He's bound, just like he said. The mob was shouting different things. Claudius couldn't figure it out. Verse 34. And in verse 35, it says they carried him away because of the violence of the crowd. And in verse 36, it says, away with him! Away with him! Remember somebody else that they said that about? Jesus. Luke 23. If you want to know the power of His resurrection, you have to share in His suffering. Paul wrote that in Philippians 3. But verses 37 to 40, and I'll close with this. Paul saw an opportunity. He, did, he, didn't, he, did, he wasn't, man, and he's looking at this crowd, he's going, okay, this is awesome. I've got the Romans here protecting me. I can address them. So he raised his hands. And this is the last prophetic gospel message to Israel as people in the temple. He gives it to them right there. And what does he do? He trusts in the sovereignty and the life that he had been given. So, as we leave here today, I want you to think about these questions. How often 
Or do I really give God the glory for the accomplishments He's done through me? That's something we all need to wrestle with. How well do I submit to the authority God has placed over me? Whether it's at work, whether it's here in the city. And I'm not talking about unbiblical things. Of course the Bible is our authority. But those that he has appointed over us, what if it's not unbiblical? And then how well am I trusting in his sovereignty in my current circumstances? And as we think about those, finish with this question, is there anything I need to repent of? What needs to change? Father, thank you for the reminder through your servant Paul that you have called us to a life of humility, of trust, and obedience. In him, Lord, we see the measure of a man fully surrendered. May we be those men out in our world today. We love you, and we praise you. Amen. Amen.